Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the podcast twice within six months. Our man, Dr. Drew Hart. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Thank you, Luke. Glad to be uh, back. It's good to be in conversation with you again. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How is uh, House Philly doing these days? Still missing me? Is it missing you? Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, have you given <laughs> up on the Cowboys yet? I don't know if they're oh, missing you or not. Oh, yet, you know? wow. <laughs> no, I haven't given up. I mean, you guys lost to what, the the Redskins last week? I don't know how you can talk to you can't, you can't touch me. I don't even watch football anymore, so you can't really okay. touch me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably a smart thing. But uh, And excuse me, the Washington football team. It's hard for me to even say that correctly. But uh, okay, as long as it makes you feel better. When, are you a basketball fan? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm not going to talk about the Sixers because that's that's just too mean. I mean, um, I don't want to get that's I don't want to like get you all out of shape. I mean, if you're even more out of shape, they might call you the starting center for the Sixers um, because you know he's never in shape. Uh, that's a Embiid joke right there for all of you basketball fans. Okay, so uh, as listeners have deduced, I am from Philadelphia. Drew's from Philadelphia. Um, Kobe Bryant, he when he passed away, you, uh it did something to me because he's around the same age as us. Yeah. He's got you've got boys, I've got girls, but still, you, you know, you're you're a dad, and obviously, I, I didn't know Kobe. Like you, I assume you don't know Kobe. Um, but there's even a mural that I drive by in Austin, Texas, of Kobe and Gianni. Uh, yeah. uh, did it have the same effect on you, like as a Philly guy, like? Uh, as a young father? Uh, it hit me some. I mean, and it wasn't necessarily even as a father, but um, what was interesting, I actually had some friends who played against him in Norristown. Yeah. Um, and so just, it just, Kobe's been one of the, I mean, he, even though he's like this enormous superstar, he also probably more than most NBA players also just feels like, you know, one of the guys from around the way, kind of, you yeah, know, I mean, like, yeah. like he, he does, he's not outside of this universe. Um, and so I think that that closeness certainly hit me. In a, it was kind of strange to kind of grapple with that. Yeah. 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 The, you know, it's weird when you think of celebrity deaths. Obviously, the most recent one for, for many of us, at least those of us who are Marvel fans, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Who, uh, you know, everyone uh, knows for, from plenty of the roles that he, he, he lived into. But we, I had one of my, uh, one of my friends is a big comic guy, Fate Haygood, on, and we talked about Black Panther when it came out. And you know, Fate talked about as you know, he's he's twenty years older than both of us, but as you know, a black man to see the representation of uh, you know a, a superhero like that that Chad Chadwick played in such a, a you know amazing way. Uh, so I, I like I really appreciate his work, but when when he passed away, it had a different level on me than even Kobe Bryant's passing. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it affected you. I don't know if you're you know, even a Black Panther fan or not, but it was absolutely, absolutely, okay. yeah. I mean, he was. I mean. I mean, you think about just the timing of Black Panther with in the midst of with the Black Lives Matter movement and just the cultural. It, he he in some ways, he was like a symbol of hope and freedom for black people. Certainly. I don't yeah, know about yeah. white people, but but I mean, he was just and uh, it was just significant in that kind of. And so and he just poured himself into so many roles that just um, brought just deep dignity to black figures throughout history, um, icons, right? And and so for him to go so young after, it seemed like he just had so much more to give. No kidding. It's just, it's, it's, it was a lot. It was a lot. 
it it seemed like he just got his break. Like he was just becoming the person. And he, I heard him on another uh, someone else's podcast talking about how like his break came later in life than some actors. Yeah, and it seemed like like this is oh we're just now getting into what he's going to become. And uh, yeah, and obviously that role of you know Black Panther. I you know I've had you know many friends describe the effect it had on them in a way that as a white guy, I'm never going to connect and understand it that way. But um, yeah, that was, that was something. 2020 has been, it's been a rough one, man. It's been rough. It's um, just completely rough. Yeah. But you know, what's going to make it good is that your book came out two weeks ago and it is going to be the bright spot in 2020 because it is, uh, you know, everyone's going to read this book and go, this is going to redeem everything that's happened so far. <laughs> Do you feel like that's too much pressure to put on the new book? That was what I was thinking. I was thinking, um, that this will undo everything that 2020 has done so far, and I'm not even worried about it anymore. Yeah, y- your book is going to single-handedly undo the effect that COVID had on our entire world. So <laughs> good job on that. As, as an Anabaptist, you're giving, you know, this is your service to the world, and, and we appreciate that. When, when I talk to people about, uh, I think I referenced you to someone else recently. Uh, they were asking who's on the podcast. I said, you know, Drew, and he goes, oh, that's the Anabaptist guy, right? Uh, do you get, like, that's like... Don't don't you have some stick of like black Anabaptist like some right and a blacktivism right 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 yeah. right so I have yeah. to tell people like because I wasn't raised in Anabaptist communities and the majority of my time has not been although I have been some but but my formation I mean starts I can't begin to tell my story without talking about the black church that formed me yeah. and the ongoing engagement I do with black theology so I'm not just an Anabaptist in some ways what I did was take what I learned, my black faith uh, creatively engaged with Anabaptism um, in meaningful ways. And I also challenge Anabaptism um, and mm-hmm. Anabaptists. I mean, just literally last weekend, I was given a talk on race in the church for uh, both Mennonites and Church of the Brethren folks. And I gave it to them. You know, I, I, gave, <laughs> I gave them a hard challenge um, because I think there's some um, gaps in terms of at least the practice that needs to be um, wrestled with. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, before we jump into that, give me your thumbnail definition of what an Anabaptist is. Because some people have heard that, that word, but they're like, I don't, I don't know exactly how to define it. Yeah, so an Anabaptist, I mean, the term comes from 16th century, when most people are thinking about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all these guys. You have a radical Reformation taking place that are challenging not only the Catholic Church, but also those Protestant Reformers. In fact, the way it gets told now is that they're magisterial Reformers, because they're all in some ways, still practicing Christendom, church-state relationships, top-down Christianity, just in their own regions, different forms and brands of Christianity now. Yeah. And so they break with all of that. And in some ways, they're part of the poor peasant rebellion movement that's happening. And you see in response, these radical communities that are trying to take Jesus seriously through discipleship, through economic sharing, uh, through uh, theology and practice uh, an ethic of of peace and, I would say, nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Um that has been a tradition, a living tradition, and it's been shaped in different ways. And so in the present day, um, a lot of times people emphasize discipleship and community and peacemaking. Um, But I think there's, when you look at it from a historical standpoint, I think to think of it as a renewal movement and an anti-Christendom movement Mm -hmm. and a radical discipleship movement, right? Um, That rejects the kind of status quo uh, Jesus that's been turned into a mascot for social dominance, right? Yeah. I think that that that's some of what I th- I think of the tradition, and it challenges um, the course of top-down Christianity that we see in our society. 
Yeah, yeah, that's good. And in the book, the new book is titled "Who Will Be a Witness," which is a great book. Um, you uh, you have a quote from I believe it's uh, Frederick Douglass who talks about how much he uh, he 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 loves Christianity, but w- what he's seen. Frederick Douglass, he was uh, was a a slave who was eventually freed. Is that right? He, like he, he ran away. He broke free from, so he wasn't free. He freed himself. <laughs> um, he freed himself, ran away, mm-hmm. became an abolitionist, a great abolitionist. And so it actually comes that portion that you're talking about comes in the appendix of his slave narrative where, cause he's just gone hard at American Christianity. So he's like, mm-hmm. look, uh, he starts off by like, um, just so no one's confused. Like I don't have anything against proper Christianity but I got a problem with the Christianity of this land. And that, then he leads into that, you know, he loves true Christianity, but he hates the religion of this land. And he thinks that they're diametrically opposed to one another. And so while he loves the pure, peaceable Christ, he hates the slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle robbing Christianity of this land, right? I mean, it's yeah. a pretty powerful uh, word he has. Yeah, you, you have a quote in the book. And so I had to read it twice just to go, okay, sit and listen to this. Because that is, in, in some ways, there is... To say he's an Anabaptist would be, you know, probably anachronistic and probably wouldn't be accurate. But the impetus of what some of the Anabaptist movement is saying, I mean, it, it coincides with what he's saying as well. And maybe that's part of the, the, you know, the the black church and the Anabaptist connection that that you're bringing together with your work, right? Yeah, I mean, they're both two different traditions that are born on the underside of Western European Christianity, um, just in different contexts. Anabaptism from literally in the belly, the beasts of European Western Christianity. And uh, black faith is born as as that Western Christi- Christianity goes outward to the rest of the world and then enslaves black people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this reinterpreting of the faith um, within black Christians that rejects the white supremacist interpretation of Christianity. And so I think that um, there's a lot of similarities, not everything, but there's a lot of deep similarities. And in some ways, I find in the two together, a creative double critique of uh, Western Christianity in terms of its mangled witness as it relates to colonialism and white supremacy and course of Christianity. Yeah, wow. So as someone who's, whose work has been this for for years, I mean, this, is, this, this isn't new to you. You didn't just like right. pick this up over the weekend. Like you've been doing this for no. a while. And so as you see in our collective conscience, I'm saying Al is like, uh, you know, Western, specifically Americans, American Christians, like race is front and center right now. And people are talking about... It, is it fair to say, do you think it's fair to say it's, we're talking about it more now than we have been, or it's at least front and center more than it has been, right? You're shaking your head? Certainly at the moment, yeah. 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 Okay, so as you're seeing this, and as someone who's been passionate about this, someone who's been teaching, someone who's been calling us out, like, do you find yourself going, oh, glad we're talking about this, or are you going, uh, you know, there's some parts of this that are making me uncomfortable? Like, what's your feeling? Well, I mean, what's been interesting is there certainly have been more conversations on race and racism some of them have been really meaningful. Some of them have been pretty shallow, right? Um, so you have some folks who haven't been thinking about this, have done no work, they haven't understood where we've, how we've gotten to where we are today, and then all of a sudden now they want to lead the conversation. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the uh, desire, the goodwill to want to be a part of the solution, but sometimes when you don't understand the problem and you haven't done the homework, um, you can actually cause more problems than than you're solving. And so they're giving really simplistic answers to complex problems. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think the one that is kind of, uh, at least for me, the... 
I don't know if it kind of sums it up, but the most uh, attention-getting example of that was uh, what happened with Lecrae uh, a couple mm. months ago. Where oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah. He was on the podcast a couple weeks of talking about this, and, and so we're not going to talk about the other people involved uh, by name. But what Lecrae was saying is that you you have people who aren't doing their homework, and they in in their uh, ignorance, I guess it might be the right word. Uh, their ignorance, what they do is they create undue pressure for a community that's already hurting. And Lecrae gets, you know, taken to task all over social media from both sides. And you're going, Lecrae is not the guy who said the dumb thing. Like he's not the one, but, but Lecrae's response was, we have a lot of people who, because of their skill and because people like me who talk for a living and teach for a living, we're used to being teachers. So in a time like this, when we haven't been the student enough, we think I'm just going to still be the teacher because I'm a teacher. That's what I do. And it shows that we're not doing our homework. Right. Absolutely. I think that's one of the great challenges. I mean, you think about Jesus teaching whether the first are last and the last are first, and there's this flipping of hierarchies. And I I think that one of the best things that many white Christians can do in this moment, especially those that haven't been doing the work, is to remove yourself from the expectation that you're the the teacher Mm -hmm. to becoming the student and the learner. And I think that um, there's a greater need for that right now uh, for those who need to actually undergo for themselves a journey of transformation um, rather than assuming that they have all the answers um, to lead other people through. And so, okay, yeah. co- Coach me up though. For someone like me, uh, yeah. let's say, uh, just for the sake of our, that I haven't been doing the homework, that I haven't had, been having yeah. conversations and reading the books and you know all that. And I, I, I see what's going on. And I see, you know, the the Twitter expert who says, you know, if your pastor doesn't say this, this Sunday, then you need to leave that church. And so I I feel that external pressure, like I got to say something, but I know that I don't really have the preparation. Uh, What would you tell me to do in a situation like that? People are expecting me to say something, but I don't. Yeah, I mean, even so in that case, maybe the best thing to say is um that I don't have what I need. Like I'm not prepared. My community hasn't prepared me. My seminary has not prepared me. Hmm. Um, and so I don't have the gifts to prepare you guys for what we need for this moment. Um, but we need something and we're going to have to journey together as a, as a church. And we're going to have to explore and listen to other voices. And we're going to have to lean into traditions and communities that have been doing this work for a long time precisely because our community hasn't been. So maybe that is a confession point that can model for the broader community um, that we have some learning to do and some growing to do and some stretching to do. And 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 you can make yourself the first learner of that's the good. church, right? That's a to great, model that for others. That's that's really good. I mean, I, maybe the kind of leadership that we need the most is that sort of humble, vulnerable leadership that says, yeah, I, I haven't done the work. I, I'm not ready yet. And... Yeah, it, there's the old pro, like the old proverb that says it's better to be thought of a fool and not say something than to open your mouth and prove everyone right that you are a fool. I mean, there, there's right. something to be said of okay, hey, people are going to find out one way or the other. Um, that's and good. I think people will also resonate with because I mean, the fact of the matter is most white Christians have not done the work, and so when they hear you saying, "I haven't done the work, I don't know all the history, I haven't studied this," they're going to resonate with that, right? They're going to connect with that, um, and so your vulnerability will actually be hopefully an opportunity for them to also be vulnerable and confess for themselves that they are not the experts in the room. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, One of my elders sent out um, an article, I think it was from Barna, that said during this time, white churches had become more reticent to talk about. Uh, Did you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, Yeah, I saw it. How did you you process that? Uh, Two things. One, I mean, 
I, I can't say I was surprised. That would be not right. I mean, in some ways, it's obvious that there's some folks who are doubling down right now. So I don't think I can say I was surprised, but it's still discouraging. I think um, when you actually read the stats that, you know, they're seeing black people being killed on videos and stuff. And the response is doubling down on being less interested in racial justice. That's pretty troubling. Um, But on the other hand, I feel like there's a story that's not being told in the midst of that. And I guess I just say that from what I'm seeing on the ground. Like I am engaged in racial justice work in my community. And we're also seeing a deepening of commitment from many leaders. Like we have, I'm a co-leader for a group called Free Together in my city in Harrisburg. And we've got more people around the table right now than we ever have, right? Wow, that's um, precisely in this moment. And so there is this deepening of commitment of some in terms of actually showing up to do the work when we've been begging them to otherwise. And so like it's, and th- I get into this in, in my book, like we don't need to win over the whole world to make transformation and change in our society. In fact, uh, on a social science level, like they say, if you could get 3.5% of the population in sustained active participation in a movement, it always wins. I think it's always <laughs> successful. That's now, not a lot, yeah. It doesn't sound like it. Now, of course it is. I mean, it's still a lot in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, but it's not, you don't have to win everybody over to, to challenge um, unjust systems and oppression. Um, and that, and that's, that, that's under democracies and dictators, right? I mean, it's a pretty powerful um, statistic on a global level to see how powerful movements can be when um, you have sustained, they have to be sustained and active. It's not just mentally, you have to be involved. Yeah. I wonder if one of the reasons that some churches have become more reticent about, about race right now is because it's been so divisive or like our culture has become so divided. And so the thinking is, okay, if we talk about this, we're going to perpetuate an already sort of like vitriolic environment and we don't want to further perpetuate the division between us and them, whoever us and whoever them are. Now, right. um, like I get that, like I I get that this conversation creates a lot of anxiety and that it, it is, uh, you know, it's terrifying to see the way that like there's been such polarization. So I, like, I understand that, but it's, um, right. you can't not yeah. talk about something just because it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I literally today I was on a zoom call with some pastors um, from another city and one of them was saying, you know, they're in this multicultural church and he's excited about how they have people from across the partisan divide all in the congregation and they're trying to work on race but anytime somebody brings up, you know, names of politician, probably talking about Trump, then everything falls apart. Right. And for me, I said, you know, like the political system, like that's a part of our environment. Like, how do you not talk about what's happening, especially in terms of the policies that are um, being implemented or the rhetoric that is shaping our context? Like, I'm, I, I think on one hand, we have to avoid just falling into the corrosive partisan politics and the logics that keep us captive to those logics. But at the same time, we also have to have courageous conversations about how these things impact people. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just skirt it. Right. Yeah. I think that's the the temptation is to just want to be a centrist and skirt everything. Um, but that's not the kind of faithfulness I think we're called to. Yeah. You got a section of the book where I was like, uh, we're going to disagree. We're, he's going to call me out on this one. So let's just do it right now. But your, your conversation about being a, a moderate, uh, you know, versus being yeah. like partisan. And 
like I'm far more, far more likely to be to be a moderate because one of the things I love about my church is that it's politically diverse, and I think that's a value that I want that, that, it, that existed before I got here. I didn't create this, like you know, that, that wasn't my yeah. doing, and I don't want to undo it. I want to like as you know, Paul talks about sure. to keep the unity of the spirit. Like I want to do my part, and so I'm more likely to be a moderate. And like on the one hand, like you make stuff like you don't want to soften things. Like if, if something's wrong, it's wrong. You want to speak the truth about it. But uh, okay, so. Tell me what I'm missing. Someone who tries to be a moderate. What am I missing? And like we're friends, yeah. so like nothing but love here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Coach me up on this. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing. It's I think it's a beautiful thing to have people in the church. I don't think we all have to agree on the philosophy for how change comes. We can disagree on, um, you know, whether you know free market or the, we yeah, can yeah. disagree on that kind of. You know, I think that that's not what's at stake. Um, but the way I frame it in the book is this desire to be moderate and to just kind of meet in the middle between these two positions. Number one, it's an arbitrary position because, I mean, for example, I think many around the world would say that um, our political system is geared towards the right compared to many other democracies already, right? Yeah. So it, the idea that the middle of something is an arbitrary thing in and of itself and it doesn't necessarily necessarily suggest that it's righteous or just or good. And so, I mean, there might be times when being in the middle, there might be some things where being in the middle is just fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we're in Holocausts, right, under <laughs> Holocaust, you don't want to go halvesies <laughs> on the Holocaust, right? You don't want to meet in the middle on apartheid or on slavery or on any of these yeah. really devastating social problems. And so the real question is, do we have the courage to figure out what is faithful and what is right and what is just mm-hmm. um, and pursue that. And sometimes it may be radically differentiating yourself from the whole spectrum, yeah. right? I don't think that Jesus fits nicely within our conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican system. Yeah. And so, yeah, there might be times where we're called to, it might be in the middle and sometimes it might be closer to one of these political parties and, and it might be prophetically condemning the whole system because yep. it's all trash. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that's how do we free our captivity from just the, the, the conversation that's handed to us um, and keep sight of God's dream for us. Um, and, and I think that that is the greater work that we as congregations want to lean into and it's got to be messy um, and we've got to find good practices for having hard conversations yeah. in the church together. Yeah, we'll get to the prophetic critique part in a minute. I want to I want to go there because you got some good stuff in the book about it. But I, what you said up front, like if you have a preference of, do you think you know big government or big business is better? Like those are preferences that, like, okay, I want to be moderate about that. Like you might think big business, you th- you might think big government. One of those is better than that. I get that. But uh, obviously, when you bring up the Holocaust, like that, yes. Uh, <laughs> As I heard one rabbi say, you know, who, uh, whoever the first is to bring up the Holocaust makes everyone a loser. So, like, yeah, obviously compared to that, like, everything is... But, but here's the thing, though. Right now, we live in a society where we have two million people imprisoned, the largest prison population the world has ever known, and, and yet nobody, like, the whole, whether Republican or Democrat... The whole system is has nothing meaningful to say mm. in response to just the oppression that's going on in our society. So meeting in the middle between those two is meaningless. Wow. That's, there's nothing just or righteous yeah. about being a moderate 
in terms of mass incarceration in the prison industrial yeah, yeah, complex, right? Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so th- that's pretty serious stuff that's going on even in our society today. And so there might be other ways in which you're right. You want to debate. I mean, I will disagree with somebody around, you know, big business being our salvation, but I can, I can, I do have great friends who I disagree with on these things and we can talk and we can discuss as brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's not, I don't think that that believing in that philosophy um, makes one not a follower of Jesus, yeah. right? So long as they still are committed to loving their neighbors and, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. all the basic practices that come with being a follower of Jesus. But when you look at o- oppression, like that is a different category. It's almost like we need, um, like we need different categories for some of these things because they're, when it comes to oppression, that's different than, you know, different philosophical approach about what you think is the best way for everyone to, you know, you know, be taken care of. Yeah, I, I hear what you're but saying. But those things have been bound together too often. Exactly. Sometimes partisan positions are getting locked with how we respond to different injustices. And that's where things, where I can't equivocate when I see, I'll, I'll be explicit, Republican Party sometimes uh, aligning themselves with positions that are anti the well-being of black people, right? Um, so I'm going to name those things, even if I can say, yes, just being a Republican in and of itself, philosophically, there's nothing inherently evil about in, in, internalizing some of those ideas, even yeah, if yeah. I might disagree with them, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. So the prophetic uh, tradition is, um, it's different in the white church and the black church. And one of the things you talk yeah. about in the book, y- your language is, it's talking black. <laughs> and y- you start off the, the section telling the story of Obama when he's running for office. And right. it, Reverend Wright, what's his first name? Uh, Jeremiah Wright. Jeremiah Wright, yeah, I think everyone knows that name except for me. But there's a quote where, uh, you know, in the sermon, there's a line where he says, like, God, speaking directly to God, God damn America. And, like, right. that's the kind of thing that doesn't go over too well in social media when that when that clip goes viral. But you did something that I didn't have before me ever, which was the rest of the sermon. And yeah. uh, what you reference is like this is a person in the in the lineage of like Ida B. Wells or you know a bunch of other people who are calling calling us out for what's uh, not right. And now in the white church, we don't we don't function in the same capacity usually. There's not as much of the pr- prophetic critique. And so when the white church hears that, they go, "Well, you you don't love America. You, you don't like right. America if you talk like that." But at, in the black church, it's not saying that at all, is it? It wants America to to be what America could be if we could let go of the oppression and the exploitation Mm -hmm. and the racism that has been such a part of our legacy. In some ways, you could say that that's the greater love, right? To want it to be better um, rather than to leave it and to be satisfied with the status quo of of a nation so embedded in coercion and cycles of violence um, that are death dealing. Yeah. But when you hear it as a critique, sometimes it's like when it's like with my brother. Like I, I think it's my job to make fun of my brother all the time. It is. I feel like my God given responsibility. But if someone else does that, like we're we're gonna have problems, you know. Like if someone else right. is calling out my brother, like no, 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 that's my job, not, not that's not yours. And yeah, you know, sometimes it seems like the so. Go ahead. Well, what, what I'm thinking though is so precisely the problem is in using your analogy is that. White people don't see black people as fully American and as belonging as fully American. And so the critique, the upsetness is, who do you think you are talking about our country, right? Um, And so it's racial belonging that's shaping that sense that doesn't see it as they're a part of us. 
um, and we all belong together in this project, this American experiment. Um, and so it's racial lo uh, logics at work defining who's in and who's out and who's allowed to make the critique and who's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's spot on. Because then the retort to that is often, well, why don't you go somewhere else? Why don't you leave, leave the country? Because it's that right, idea that, exactly. that this isn't your country, so you can leave our country that you just happened to be a visitor in. Yeah, no, no, that's, right. that's spot yeah. on. Yeah, that's a right. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I mean, other than Native Americans, you could say like black people like are so American in a distinct way and have built this country. Literally, the economy literally quadruple, not even quadruple, exponentially blew up in the midst of slavery on the backs of black people. The economy went from this little meaning, meaningless little thing of colonies to a world power during slavery. Right. Yeah. Um and I think that to suggest that black people need to leave all of a sudden because we don't think that they truly belong, um, it just says a lot about our lack of uh, historical understanding as well as then the racial logics of belonging as well. Um, yeah, yeah, you're spot on. Huh. Okay, so you start the book with a story about Dr. King. And the uh, story of Dr. King, he, what is the setting for the story where he changes from the suit to the, uh, the denim? Yeah, so he's in, he's in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. And the movement is not going as well as they would have hoped. Passover weekend and Easter's around the corner. Uh, around the corner. <clears throat> they're running out of money. They got an injunction against marching. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're in the Gaston Motel. You got a bunch of, I mean, you think about all his, his teams, a bunch of pastors yep. and, and ministers, right? And they're sitting around arguing and bickering about what they should do. Dr. King should go fundraise. Mm -hmm. Oh, they need to just break the injunction. Oh, they need to go back to their churches for Easter, all these kind of stuff. And Dr. King is just sitting there quietly listening to everybody. And um, as they're all going, he gets up, leaves the kind of living room space of the hotel and goes into the bedroom, closes the door. Moments go by. <clears throat> Moments go by and Dr. King opens the door and he's changed his clothes. And now he's changed his clothes into a blue work shirt and blue jeans. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And at the moment everyone sees them, they know what that means. They know what it means. We're, we're rolling up our sleeves. We're getting to work. Right. And it's really this really beautiful thing for me, at least it symbolizes just the need for to move beyond just the religiosity of celebrating Jesus to embodying the story of Jesus in the, in the public square. Um, how do we go to work um, and love our neighbors, go to work and do justice, go to work and, and set things right, participate in God's deliverance. Right. People are, as we talk, mass incarceration, we got undocumented folks uh, struggling, you got deep poverty in pockets of our society, underfunded education, people don't have access to health care, inadequate housing. I mean, the issues go on and on and on, and we've got to put on our blue jeans. Um, and so that's, for me, an invitation for all of us. When we see Dr. Kim put on his blue jeans, we all got to put on our blue jeans and get to work. Let's go. I, I love a costume change. I feel like, you know, we, we underestimate the power of a good wardrobe change in the right moment. Dr. King got it, though. But that was part of, what, see, it was like Project C or what was the? Yeah, Project C. Project C. Project C. Now, so that's a right. fascinating thing. And, and you kind of touched it a little bit on the book. But there's a line, I believe it's from Vincent Harding, who talks about how Dr. King has undergone uh, two assassinations. 
Uh, obviously, the one that happened at the Lorraine Hotel, which you know everyone or motel, excuse me, that everyone is aware of, but the one that happened a handful of years earlier after his "I Have a Dream" speech, and so we've assassinated him and the rest of his work, and said, "Well, that that doesn't really matter because all we're going to remember is the guy who dreams of our kids playing together." And so we forget right. that what happens is like Project C comes along, and you find this level of disenchantment with what he's doing up front, and now he becomes this, uh, you know. I don't want to say, uh, he's not, white America wanted a black angel to say, hey, we forgive you, everything's cool, let's move forward. And in some ways, the first assassination, uh, you know, put, put Dr. King in stone, say this is who he is. And we don't hear the rest right. of the more confrontational part of him. And so Project C, we're not really talking about that on the holidays for Dr. King. No, that's right. No, we've, we've frozen him in time, in space. In fact, we don't even let him give the whole I have a dream speech he just gives like two lines and that's all we'll hear from him because even there's other parts in that speech that are hard to hear if people actually listen to it. But yeah, as he goes, I mean, he's not static. He, he's dynamic. He's growing. He's, he's learning. He's changing. He's adapting um, in terms of his leadership. And so uh, he has really powerful critiques to make as he goes. In fact, it's not long after he gives his I have a dream speech that he says that his dream begins to turn into a nightmare. Hmm. And so... We leave that out, right? <laughs> we still talk about his dream while he says it's turning into a nightmare in terms of what he's seeing in the United States. And um, he makes, um, he's known uh, towards the end of his years of talking about the big triplets of racism, militarism, and um, materialism, mm. and, and just how those things are intertwined together. He starts the Poor People's Campaign, trying to draw all poor people together. He's calling for a radical revolution of values because we become too much of a a thing-oriented society instead of a person-oriented society. Yeah. Um, it, he, he even goes as far as in his Beyond Vietnam War speech to say America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, right? Um, so it's, it's interesting when we get all upset with Jeremiah Wright, but, but I mean, Dr. King had a whole range of really damning critiques around American society, and it was said that his, his latest sermon was going to be... Um, his last sermon that he was working on was entitled why America might go to hell. Right. Um, and so you have a really prophetic voice and we've lost sight of that prophetic, uh, dangerous King in some ways, radical yeah, King yeah. as Cornel West calls him, um, because we want a Santa Clausified King, right? We want a Disney King, um, that is comfortable and makes us feel uh, all sentimental, um, rather than hearing what we actually need to hear. Yeah. We don't like the, again, this is your language, the talking black version of Dr. King, who's going to have the prophetic tradition, because then it would require us to, to do some more soul work than what we want to do. Soul searching. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it, there's also like, so you think of the sermon he's about to preach. I, I've also heard, and, and you're obviously way more informed on this than me, but that around the corner, there was a, a possible meeting with uh, Malcolm X, that he was supposed to meet up and, and to see there was the trajectory of where X and where King were going and right. Am I? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what scholars have said is just that they were really moving in very similar directions that um, Malcolm X on one hand is opening up to working with more and more people. Um, he's willing to work with Dr. King and even allow white people to participate if they're committed to racial justice. And meanwhile, Dr. King is becoming more radical and saying more militant things um, and really becoming more discouraged with what he's seeing in the country. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, 
that's a, a fascinating what if what, like what would what would happen and this is one of the heartbreaking things of you don't see the full trajectory of someone's life and it, it, if anyone's right. read any of uh, Malcolm X's story and figured out where he started and where he came from and, and what led him to some of the decisions he made I mean it's an absolutely heartbreaking story and to, to yeah. see the way that he has been wronged and mistreated like I don't, I don't I'm not saying behind his full catalog of work or anything like that I'm just saying that the figure came out of some real heartbreaking stuff that he was treated terribly by, you know, the worst of racism in our country. Absolutely. I mean, you, I mean, here's the thing. So <laughs> I know white people want to like, you know, demonize Malcolm X, especially his early years with the nation of Islam because of all this stuff around like white devils and stuff like that. But I mean, like, you know why the nation of Islam was so popular? Because look how white people were acting, right? Like, I mean, it, uh, so it, it caught traction because of just the the mm. apathy towards the the well-being of black people and just the oppression and the blatant disregard for black life. Um, it made it easy for that kind of narrative to to take root. And so, if black if white folk were more loving and more justice oriented, mm. it wouldn't even have made sense, right? Uh, but all of a sudden, people are like, "Yeah, maybe white people are devils because mm. look at what how they treat us. Why would they for?" centuries treat us this way right and so i think the greatest argument um is somebody who embodies (laughs) the truth and justice right that i would say jesus calls us to it's the sad tragedy of so much of western christianity is how many people who name jesus who don't bear witness or embody the way of jesus in in the slightest no that's um that's tough and obviously you know when you have someone who's wasn't malcolm x's father Killed a Baptist yeah, preacher. Yeah, a Baptist preacher. He was yeah, he, he was, was killed. But he was killed. And then, yep, he was killed by KKK. And then his yeah. mom ends up in like a psychiatric ward or something. And I mean, yeah, I I don't care what group did that to my family. Like I would have a great deal of hatred towards them, and it would take right. a, a a great act of God for me to learn to do what God calls me to, do, which is to forgive. And so, like, yeah, I get right. like that level of discouragement. And one of the things that. Um, really haunted me was uh Tanasi Coates' book Between Me and the World and you know this this letter yeah. between father and son and you know the book ends and like he's he has it would it be fair to say like he has no hope like he is completely pessimistic pessimistic about where this thing is going now you have sons three boys right last time I checked yeah, yes absolutely. um when you think about the world that they're growing up in do you have pessimism discouragement do you have optimism hope like wh- where are you on that spectrum so it, yeah, I think pessimism or optimism probably aren't helpful words to describe um, where I'm at. I think, I mean, or, or, or maybe there's a pessimism in the sense that I expect that white supremacy will still be around in really death dealing ways throughout their life. Right. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that for just from a historical standpoint, unless some something radical disrupts our way of life, our trajectory, that's going to be it. I also, though, am not um, without hope because I also can look back and without even just talking about just being a person of faith and just saying it in the, in the generic sense, like, you know, it has been uh, people who have embodied hope, right? Mm. Um, and who struggled for another world and who helped to continue to change our world. Um, and so the fact of the matter is, is that because of 
you know, folks like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and others, like we're not living under slavery right now. And because of Shuttlesworth and Ida B. Wells and Dr. King and, um, you know, so many others like that, you know, there were legislative changes in the mid to late, you know, 20th century that have created new opportunities for us. And so I think that, um, that we can embody the hope, right? We can be the hope for others that people can see that um, as a practice, as a way of life, um, that we're living into it right now, even despite um, what we see going on all around us. Yeah, no, that's true. It seems that optimism and pessimism is a realistic assessment of circumstances. And so for you to make a statement about, you know, I'm pessimistic that... um, that they are not, or, you know, you're, the realistic assumption is that your kids are going to grow up in a world in which there is going to be that. Yeah, like, that That makes sense. It seems like hope is a, uh, is, is a different category, and I, I appreciate it. It seems like you're di- differentiating those two things, because, you know, the teachings of Jesus, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Like, I think that's, that's hope. It's not based on the circumstances that we're looking around, and I, I, I like your language of, like, we could be those people for someone else and for the next group. Uh, one of the things you say in the book, and this is from uh, uh, Dr. Uh, William Barber, who said, uh, what we need is a moral imagination. This picture of, like, uh, let's, let's imagine something different. How would you flesh out what uh, an immor- a moral imagination would look like or, or how it could function? Well, I think some of it is just freeing us from the logics of right versus left, mm-hmm. right? Republican versus Democrat. And thinking, yeah, so... Not are we right wing, but are we righteous, right? Yeah. Um, and how do we have a, a a framework for sin and righteousness that's not captive to the corrosive partisan logics of our society? I think that that's necessary. How do we talk about sin in the most holistic way that can talk about um, not only personal sin, but the sin of how we organize our society, mm-hmm. the ways that we um, organize our lives that are anti-shalom, anti the well-being and the flourishing of all people, especially the most vulnerable, the least last and lost that Jesus prioritized in his own ministry. And so we've got to be able to have a moral language. And I think that at least those who, I mean, I don't always like the language progressive, but those who lean progressive sometimes have given up and have pretty much handed that over to those um, who maybe have, a, I would say, a thin definition of sin and morality that have nothing to do with treating people right with dignity and respect and seeking the flourishing of all people. And so I think those are moral issues um, that because we're all created in the image of God, everyone ought to be able to have food at night. Everybody ought to have shelter. Everybody ought to be educated and treated with respect. Um, And these are moral issues. These are righteous issues um, that we can't um, let go of. Hmm. That's right. In the book, you you mentioned that obviously what you just said, the idea of you believe in social sin, but also personal sin, that it's not like this either or, which it seems that we've gotten lost in where it's, you know, if, if you have one political perspective, you're going to believe in one type, and if you have the other, you're going to the other type, but we can do both. And I think that's what you're talking about, the idea of it's not, are, are you left or right? Like, this is based on the kingdom of God, and we have this distinct, peculiar way of understanding these things because of our commitment to the kingdom of God, which helps us elevate over the sort of partisan back and forth stuff. Um, I, I think uh, I saw this quote from uh, Benjamin Watson who said like everything has to be us versus them. And there always has to be a winner and loser, but he, but we don't realize that it's making all of us lose. 
Like what we're right. doing right now, like everyone's losing because of this. And obviously not to the same degree. And some people are, are losing in a more poignant and, uh, you know, hurtful way. Agreed. But like, this isn't working. So we need to be something different. And so, um, dare I say what we need is witnesses and we need a book asking us who's going to be a witness. So there's, there's your book solving the problem, solving 2020. It's done. It's over. We're ready for 2021. There it is. Okay, so the book is entitled Who Will Be a Witness? People need to get a copy of it. Uh, Dr. Hart, it's been great to have you back on. And um, you you really aren't a football fan now? Like, I, I just want to, like, uh, circle back to that. I have not. I've not been watching any football. I probably have watched, like, two games in the last three years. Really? Just out on football? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've, I just... I, for multiple reasons. One, I mean, the initial response was because I was just disgusted by how the NFL responded to Kaepernick mm. and then thinking also about just the brain damage stuff, but then also just the busyness of my life mm. on top of it in terms of just feeling like I just need to pick one sport and stick with mm. it. And I feel like basketball has been my first love in terms of sports. So, so that's, that's what I'm willing to put some time in to be invested emotionally mm. in terms of their wins and successes. But w- what about when your best player can't get in shape and your second best player is shooting with the wrong hand? You still you still can root for your team? Is that wrong? Did I just hey. do you wrong like that? I'm sorry. That's not even... It's just, just low right now. You know, I, I, I feel like I want to be able to defend myself, but since we got swept, I've not been saying too much in defense of them. We embarrassed ourselves. I mean, if year. only you guys could have had Jimmy Butler on your team somehow. Like, how could that have? How could that have happened? Like, how do you not know? Like that guy. Like he's just like that's. You got to have that guy in your team anyway. Whatever. I don't mean to kick you while you're down, but uh, I said a lot of nice things about your book because I meant it, uh, and I'm not going to say anything nice about your basketball team. You know why? Because I also mean it. <laughs> that's cool <laughs> next year next, what's your team again anyway basketball I, uh, I, I just follow LeBron around I'm not a real basketball fan uh, uh, but yeah, like okay. as somebody who lives in Texas I've got Luca in my life now and I can just hop on that van wagon and uh, be happy whatever you want yeah we're not worried about Luca. oh come on <laughs> come on don't give me that don't give me that the dude is he's legit so yeah, he's nice he's oh, nice he's nice, nice. He's like 14 years old and he's all NBA first team. Okay, whatever. Okay, we're going to stop right now. Drew, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.